0: Good morning, I really have appreciated getting to know you a little better and especially those of you who come up to me and say, oh, remember my name is, that always helps me as well. Uh, excited about this trek you're on uh, with this New Testament challenge. Uh, I'm interested in the fact, the way they have pulled the scriptures together and they, realize, they help us realize probably in a better way that God has a bigger message than sometimes we take home. If we, uh, well, like some of us preachers do, we take this passage that works really good for us this week and we preach on that. And then we forget about all the others around it and what led up to it. The thing that is dangerous is if we take scripture out of context because we lose the power of the context. And so, I am actually going to be really brave this morning. I'm going to preach a whole chapter. And you guys are ready to take your naps. But uh, I don't know that we often, especially in our Anabaptist traditions, have taught Matthew 18 as a unit, realizing that it was one set of teachings from Jesus in a unique setting. So if you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. What did I say we were going to read from this passage? 10 to 20. Okay. We're going to read verses 10 through 20 of Matthew 18. But that's not the whole sermon. So don't get your heart set on that alone. I hope it gives you a sense of what we're doing. Matthew chapter 18 verses 10 through 20. See that you don't look down... On one of these little ones for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my father in heaven what do you think if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for that one that wandered off and if he finds it I tell you the truth he's happier about that one sheep then about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that the matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses if he refuses to listen to them tell it to the church and if he refuses to listen to the even the church treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector I tell you the truth whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven again I tell you that if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. This passage, chapter 18, is unique in the fact that it seems as though Jesus took aside his disciples. As we see in verse 1, at that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So here they are as disciples saying, okay, so who's got the better chair around the table? Or who's closer to Jesus? Who's the greatest? They were vying for position. And it was just the disciples. Jesus reaches outside that circle and brings a child into the circle and says, I tell you the truth, unless you change, and this is to his disciples unless you change and become like little children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven verses 3 therefore whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven so what is Jesus trying to do I believe what Jesus is trying to do is help his disciples make that bridge that all of us need to make at one point in time. Make that bridge from living life like everybody else in the world lives life. To living life for Jesus. It changes the end game. In other words, we're all living life in this room, right? some of us a little bit more than the rest of us some of us are a little closer to the end than we were before but we're living life as we discover Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior we realize that he came into this world for a mission that God's love sent him into the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life God loves everybody but not everybody's going to get on board For us, then, the end game is to be with Jesus. It's the other side. And that begins to change how we live in the here and now. It changes how I approach Sunday morning. I might want to be with brothers and sisters like myself. It changes what I do at Sunday noon. It changes how I order my week and how I participate in activities like the New Testament Challenge because we're looking at the end game. Several years ago, while my wife and I were traveling, we were coming back from Virginia, and I had discovered on the map that there was a town called Patterson. And I like to visit these towns called Patterson, and I was knee deep in my genealogy at this time, and I think it was Patterson, West Virginia. I since have not been able to find this spot. With where this all happened but I decided with this long motor home and this car that we were towing which you can't back up in some of these arrangements okay I was not driving clear another 45-50 miles to get around and find a crossing over the Ohio River to get to this town now call it cheap if you will and you might as well At seven miles to the gallon, that really counts up. So I had found this crossing on the map across the river. And granted, it didn't look like much on the map, but I thought, well, if it's on the map, it's gotta be good, right? They don't put it on the map if it's just, you know, not really there. As we got closer to this spot, the road turned from two-lane pavement to gravel. And I should have known right there, I was in trouble. But the signs were all there, Ohio, and so I meandered that direction. When we made a curve and saw what was before us, my wife and I both nearly went into shock. I didn't know there were any bridges existing like that anymore. What it was, was a converted railroad trestle. It was one lane. In addition to that, on this trestle were two, I think probably four by 12s, meant for the tires. And here is this huge river. And I began to think, dare I? go across this bridge it's gonna save me lots of miles it's gonna save me lots of gas but look at this risk I'm taking and if I get off that 2 by 12 4 by 12 Katie bar the door so I said Charlene what do you think and in her wisdom she said well you're driving Thank you, dear. And so I decided if it held a locomotive at one time, surely it will hold this camper and the little dinghy behind me. And so we took and I decided that the best way for me to keep the wheels on those boards well was to look ahead. And we went across that railroad trestle my wife hung on to the dog so tight that it was going we made it to the other side and all was well and we made it to Patterson and the dog lived (laughs) I wonder what would happen if we began to see this trek that we're on as Christians with our eyes on the endgame. We entitled this sermon missing the mark. But I think so often we miss the mark because we're not looking well at the goal. And I think sometimes we forget the fact that we're not only on this journey by ourselves, but there are other brothers and sisters along. With that in mind, let us go back to Matthew 18 and see as Jesus gathers his disciples aside and talks to him about who's the greatest. And he says, Hey, guys, I got a surprise for you. You see this kid over here? You see this kid over here? You got to change. You got to approach this like a little child. Like a little child approaches things. And how does a little child approach things? Faith. They, they look up to their adults. They say, "What is this all right, mommy? Is this all right, daddy?" Right? Okay. Is this permissible? Is this good? A lot of trust goes into that adult That's leading. I think Jesus was beckoning His disciples to approach Him without the question of who's the greatest, but You're the greatest, Jesus. Let me focus on You, Jesus. Let's try to be like You, Jesus, as we go on this track together. What's interesting is the other elements, these little ones, he says this several times in this passage about little ones. And then he talks about these others. And whoever becomes like a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But anyone who causes these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have A large millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Oh my goodness, did my Jesus say this? Jesus meek and mild? This don't sound meek and mild. In any way, shape, or form. Why is Jesus so harsh? Because he knows that as this movement develops from the disciples themselves. There's going to be some of us who take leadership and lead the next generation of little ones. And we had better be walking, as Paul says, circumspectly. Always watching our lives in ways, as I think of these little children, I, I, I stayed with Luke's last night, so I think of these girls, precious little ones our heart would be torn if anything would happen to them if anybody would lead them astray our heart would be torn woe to the world because things that cause people to sin such things must come verse 7 but woe to the man through whom they come if your hand causes your If your hand or foot causes you to sin, it's better to cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed and crippled than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. This is Jesus talking. Do you think he takes it seriously? He takes it seriously. What he's talking about is the church. What he's talking about is us here today. What is our end game as a church? What is your end game as each each bend? It's one thing to talk about our end game as individuals. We want to see heaven. We want to be with Jesus. We want to count our many blessings. We want to be there with him. But around each and every one of us in this room there are children wrestling with faith. They don't know the way. They don't know what to do. When a crisis comes the way and and mom and dad aren't there, they don't know where to go. And we as people, Jesus' people, can help them find the way. Doing that, we, might, we need to make sure we don't lead them astray. But Jesus is talking to these 12 disciples and saying, guys, this is going to be yours soon. And this is the role. I don't think anybody who's taken on leadership and taken the role seriously minimizes the fact that we serve people we don't lead for ourselves we don't lead for our own accolades but we lead for Jesus that takes us into the next spot where Luke had talked about the parable of the lost sheep don't look out down on the little ones for I tell you they're angels in heaven always see the face of my father in heaven Then he talks about this sheep. It seems as though he's alluding, especially if you take it in light of the Scripture ahead of it, to people who are in the church, in the fold. Little ones. If a man owns a hundred sheep, or if there's a hundred people in church, and one of them wanders away, will he not? leave the 99 on the hill safe and go look for the one that has wandered off. And when he finds it, I tell you the truth, he's happier about that one sheep than the 99 that did not wander off. They got the lesson. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of the little ones be lost. As I was preparing to drive over here, I reached in my pocket and there was something missing. You guys can probably identify with this because I imagine this morning in this room, all of you have a pair of keys in your pocket. You don't. Don't they listen well? God bless you kids. But I realized that my keys were not in my pocket. they were nowhere to be found. And so my wife and I, I was in a deadline. I needed to get on the road and get over here. And I said, well, I really don't need my keys for the next 48 hours until I get back to Kelowna. They don't open anything in Fisher, Illinois. So I said, oh, uh, maybe honey, would you please go look for them? And so I headed out to, to Fisher and she went looking for them. And uh, she r- rang the phone and said, "Well, they weren't there." And I said, "Well, did you look here?" So she hung up the phone, and she went and looked there. And they weren't there. She called back and says, "Well, where could they be now?" So I over the phone retraced my steps, and I said, "Well, the only place they could be is where they could have snuck out of my pocket." Before I drove over here, I had had to pump up the tires on my SUV. And so in pumping up the tires, I had to get up to the spare. And so I laid down and got underneath the truck and aired up that tire. And I said, they could be in the bay where I usually park the truck. Okay, I'll try one more time, she said. So Charlene hung up the phone and went back outside and found them in the bay where I'd laid down. She and I both realized that we probably couldn't have slept well last night had we not been able to find those keys. Even though I didn't need them till I returned to Kelowna this afternoon. If Lord willing, I get there. But we rest better knowing that which is lost is found. Brothers and sisters, I think we would sleep better as a church when we know that our our brother and sister in Christ are here with us and we're found, with that errant brother who's thinking something else and wandering off in his faith is found. That's why it leads into this next passage, verses fifteen through nineteen. If your brother sins against you, and notice it's against you, it's not if your brother just sins, This is the part against you. Go and show him his fault because between the two of you, just between the two of you, you know, you don't have to make a public case about it. You don't have to take it to coffee first. And you know, as I think about us as as children of the word, we're so timid when it comes to taking our Offenses, if you will, to our brother. And you know what even gets worse? It gets worse with time. It gets worse with time. So somebody doesn't offer me coffee outside before church, although they did. And I, well, how's come they didn't do that? They offered it to him, but, or some small offense like that. And if we don't say something right away, by next week, well, are they going to offer it to me this week? And by the week after that, well, I'm never having coffee at church ever again. Do you get my meaning? Whereas if we'd have just talked about it right out of the chute the very first Sunday and say, hey, would you mind pouring me some too? It would all be gone what bothers me most about the church today and us as Christians living today is we're not taking care of our stuff we're not taking care of our stuff I mean it's one thing to lose my keys in the in the uh, bay where I was airing up tires but in reality I should have taken care of my stuff And got it in my pocket ahead of time. Checked my keys, taking care of it. We need to be the church taking care of our stuff, because this situation goes on even more. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. The relationship's restored. We've got shalom again. If we talk about Shalom, I could get on a whole other sermon, but I won't. We're talking about what God's intent is from our very beginning. It's to put the broken pieces of this creation back together like He made it when He created the entire world. Shalom is putting the pieces back together. We like to call it peace, but I think that only gives part of the story. This is peacemaking. Because we're restoring a relationship that could well be broken ah but if he does not listen verse 16 take one or two others along it's not like you take it to coffee and talk about it but you take two people along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses why do we do this well maybe we misunderstood from the start If you take two or three witnesses along, at least you've got mediators there to say, you know, you could have asked for coffee right out the start. Or you could have gotten your own coffee from the start. Two or three witnesses help the truth happen. And actually, that goes all the way back to Leviticus, where the testimony is always established by two or three witnesses. Then we go to verse 17. If the relationship could be saved in verse 16, praise the Lord. Shalom. Then we go to verse 17. Why does Jesus do this? If He refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Jesus is assuming as He's teaching the disciples that this passage is coming to the church. Would be used by the church in the future. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now many of us from the Anabaptist tradition meant that you give them a different table outside when you eat, right? You cut them off, you don't talk to them anymore, isn't that right? And when we practiced this, we called it excommunication. And I've practiced it. It wasn't fun. We had a young lady in in a congregation I served. Probably one of the more painful spots in my ministry over the last 40 years. And she had divorced her husband, her first husband. And there was love in the congregation to work with that as much as we could. She married a second man and she was with that man for several years and, and there was a lot of grace in the congregation at that point point. and then she had an affair with her first husband and I as a young pastor said I think there's something wrong here and so we practiced this passage To the letter to the point that she didn't want to change anything didn't want anything different than what was going on and I said okay then you can no longer call you yourself a member a member of our church when we worked at it in Sunday morning and using this passage I said now you're gonna think it's really strange but as we practice this excommunication I want us to love her back into the congregation. And I got this really strange look, About like I'm getting this morning. I said look at this passage and it says treat him as you would a pagan or tax collector. Excuse me biblical scholars among you. How did Jesus teach pagans and tax collectors? He loved them. We see that in Luke chapter 15 in a very broad way, how he loved these people. And went went to the point of actually getting criticized by the Pharisees in depth. If you look at chapter 15, you see a lot of criticism that the Pharisees are lending to Jesus. Jesus. And he uses three illustrations as to why he was eating with them. And I find it really fascinating because Luke chapter 15 comes after Luke chapter 13. Where in Luke chapter 13, he talks about the narrow door and few will find the way you see what Jesus is trying to do here he's trying to create a people who fulfill his mission by drawing many to his way I tell you the truth whoever whatever is bound on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever is loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven Again, I tell you, what two of you agree about anything you ask for, it will be done to you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there with them. Do we realize that as we come together as Christians, yes, even in this post-COVID era, We come together to represent the brothers and sisters who love Jesus. We come together to represent His body at work on earth as as He would have it done. So many times in the book of John, we see Jesus saying, I am doing what I see the Father doing. And that is the mission He handed down to us. How can we help more people across this life bridge to heaven beyond? And that's why I think he gives this last last illustration. The bridge between it is 21 and 22. Peter came to Jesus and asked, okay, in light of all this, Jesus, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? up to seven times jesus answered i tell you not seven times but 70 times seven that sounds like a whole whip bunch of times that's a lot of times 70 times 10 490 times anybody had been uh sinned against 490 times I don't even think I have, and I've lived a long time. So Jesus gives this next illustration. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began to settle, a man owed him 10,000 talents. Now we might pass that by really fast. Okay, 10,000 talents in that day and time can't be that much, right? But how many of us have four to 6,000 billion dollars in our pocket. You do. God bless you dear. That's that's more money than I can even imagine. Granted it's not as much as a national debt but it's an awful lot of money. I can't imagine having that much money in my lifetime. But this man owed the king that much money. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he, be, he and his wife and his children all be sold to repay the debt. Wow. He's not only got himself in Dutch, he's taken his whole family into Dutch. So the servant fell on his knees before him and said, be patient with me, he begged. I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him. And canceled the debt and let him go Wow isn't that a sweet story don't you wish it ended there but those of you who know this passage know that it goes on but when the servant went out he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii a denarii equals a day's wage so he owed him 100 days wages. Not a billion. Just 100 days wages. And that servant fell down before his fellow servant and said, Be patient with me. I will pay you back. But the servant refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could repay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, the first servant, and says, you wicked servant, I canceled all your debt because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, in his anger, the master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured Until he should repay back all he owed. And Jesus finishes with these words This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you. Whoa! He's got this small circle, it's the disciples. These are the people who bought in. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother. And notice he doesn't finish there. From your heart. As I look over this passage, I see a lesson to us as Christians living in this time. Because in one way or another, we are to be a beacon to the world around us. A beacon of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sharers of his life and ministry in the here and now. I imagine you encounter a little one every day. Someone whose simplicity of faith sets them on a course. That's unscripted. They need direction. Someone who would be open to hearing about your Jesus and how your Jesus has forgiven. How your Jesus gives direction through the Gospels and through His Word and ultimately through His empowerment by the Holy Spirit and you can share it with them not looking down on them caring for them like a child walking with them through this experience and pointing them to the other side yeah I'm saying in your evangelism in your sharing remind them that heaven is ahead Take them to Revelation chapter 22, 21. But there's a time coming when there will be no more crying. There will be no more sadness. No more pain. Brothers and sisters, chapter 18 may be a sober word to the disciples, but it's equally one that should challenge us to make sure that we look carefully. At everything that could pull us off to one side or another on the bridge, like I was talking when I started, there could have been a lot of things take us off the trestle that day. A mighty wind, the water underneath taking the trestle out from under us, oh, heaven forbid. And isn't that like life? There's things that are challenging us each single day that we live. But let us live like representatives of Jesus into whatever trial comes our way so that our life represents the hope that we have in Christ. In in, uh, Romans chapter 5, Paul would put it this way. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character. And character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by His holy Spirit, whom he've given us. You see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Rarely will anyone die for someone's good, but for a good man, he might dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. May God bless East Bend and the ministry that God has called you to as a beacon of hope through Jesus Christ in this community. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this congregation and for their patience in listening to the first time I think in my entire life I've preached a whole chapter of the Bible. Thank you, Lord, for their patience. Heavenly Father, like your disciples, may we embrace the mission that you've put us upon to reach out to the little ones, and call them to you to take care with these little ones that none of, none of them should be lost and to live life as brothers and sisters who speak the clear word to one another before we take it to the coffee shop may we be your people call by your name that shine in a community in such a way that others are drawn to you. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.